listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 228. In this episode, we are talking to Amelia Horgan, author of Lost in Work, about how work stole our lives and how to escape capitalism. But first, the news. When Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama voted against a union last spring, many labor activists saw it as a devastating loss for the union and a symbolic defeat for the labor movement as a whole. But the retail warehouse and department store union may soon get another chance to establish a beachhead for organized labor within Amazon's e-commerce empire. According to the union, a regional director of the National Labor Relations Board will soon be issuing a ruling that could pave the way for a redo of the election based on the findings of an investigation into shady practices leading up to the initial vote in April. The election, in which a large majority of voters cast ballots against unionization, had been preceded by weeks of what the union calls illegal interference. An infamous mailbox could be the smoking gun. Amazon arranged with the U.S. Postal Service to have a mailbox placed directly in front of its facility in its private parking lot, which suggested that the box sort of belonged to the company. It's unclear why U.S. Postal Service went along with this scheme, but to put a finer point on it, Amazon put the mailbox inside of a big corporate branded tent. When the mailbox first showed up in the parking lot in February, Amazon sent workers messages encouraging them to use said mailbox, which they described as secure and easy, safe and convenient. It was surrounded by signage telling workers to vote here. The mailbox installation seems to parallel an earlier scheme Amazon had tried to implement unsuccessfully, setting up ballot drop boxes on the worksite. The National Labor Relations Board, which was overseeing the election process, barred the company from doing this, reasoning that it would give the appearance that Amazon was running the election and would be basically monitoring how workers were voting. The official mailbox in the Amazon tent seems to serve basically the same purpose. In a filing with the National Labor Relations Board, the union argued, quote, during the critical period and throughout the election, the employer's agents engaged in a campaign to pressure and or coerce employees into bringing their mail ballots to work and to use the collection box the employer had installed for the exclusive purpose of collecting mail ballots. Additionally, the employer's campaign destroyed the requisite laboratory conditions for an election by creating doubt regarding and possibly, in fact, compromising the secrecy of the ballot, unquote. And apparently it worked. One worker testified about workers being under intense surveillance so that, quote, you assume that everything can be seen, unquote. Now, there's no evidence that Amazon was actually checking people's votes, but that's almost immaterial because it created an intimidating perception. The union has also objected to Amazon's other pressure tactics ahead of the election, contending that Amazon's agents, quote, threatened employees with the loss of benefits and or pay if the union was voted in, and that the company said, quote, they should vote no to protect what they have, and that the union could not obtain anything in addition to what the employer already provided them, unquote. And Amazon amplified these anti-union statements through an extensive campaign of intimidation that included, quote, unquote, polling and, quote, unquote, interrogating workers about how they intended to vote. Amazon, meanwhile, continues to insist that the election was conducted under fair circumstances and the workers, quote, voted overwhelmingly in favor of a direct connection with their managers and the company, unquote. Amazon is expected to appeal the NLRB regional decision when it comes out. His statement, RWDSU President Stuart Applebaum, called the company's conduct, quote, despicable. Amazon cheated, they got caught, and they're being held accountable, unquote. And so, in a year when voting rights are under siege across the country, whether or not the union gets another stab at a free and fair election 
the National Labor Relations Board litigation might at least ensure that next time around, Amazon won't have such free reign to pervert workplace democracy. When I heard last week that AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka had died age 72, my first reaction was a loss for words. The best I could muster was he took on a thankless job at a thankless time. And a week later, I still can't really do better than that. The labor movement, as our listeners well know, has been struggling for a while, and multiple attempts at reform leadership at the AFL have not slowed the erosion of worker power. No one person, no matter how militant or charismatic, and Trumka could be both, could turn around what one former AFL employee once described to me as the sinking Titanic. So, Richard Trumka was a mine worker turned lawyer turned union leader. He started work in the coal mines age 19, following his father and grandfather into an oft-romanticized and actually brutal and miserable job, and the union backed his trip to law school. He joined the union just two years after Miners for Democracy leader Jacques Yablonsky was murdered with his wife and daughter by killers hired by the United Mine Workers of America's then-president, Tony Boyle. Chip Yablonsky, Jacques' son, ended up hiring Trumka into the UMWA's legal department, and he stayed there aligned with the reformers until, frustrated with insufficient reform leadership, he went back into the mines in order to be able to run for the presidency of the union, which he won at age 33. The Pittston coal strike in 1989 is one of the high points of Trumka's career and was one of the few successful union campaigns in the miserable 1980s. Esquire magazine describes the strike prep. Quote, early in 1988, the Pittston Corporation announced it was going to cancel health benefits for widows, orphans, and disabled coal miners, an absolute declaration of war. That meant they were prepared to fight to the death. So Trumka had to wager everything. If he lost, it would be the end of the union and the end of him too. For a year, the miners worked without a contract while he and his staff planned the strike. Determined to avoid violence this time, Trumka studied Parting the Waters, Taylor Branch's biography of Martin Luther King Jr., sent organizers to train miners in civil disobedience and sit-down strikes, reached out to the AFL-CIO and international unions, and planned a camp solidarity in the coal fields that would eventually serve 40,000 volunteers from all over the world, end quote. The strike continued with strikers occupying a coal plant and support pouring in from around the country and the world. The Esquire piece continues with a kind of fun, colorful story. Quote, a local judge began issuing injunctions against the strikers and doubling his fines every day until they totaled $64 million, a terrifying sum that would have killed the union. The choice was stark, submit or defy the law. At the peak of the tension, Trumka gathered his senior staff for a crisis meeting, and he told them, I can be a union without a treasury, but I can't be a union if all I am is a treasury. The turning point came the day the judge asked him to talk things over in private, then ordered him to stop giving people strike benefits. And he said, are you going to comply with that? Nope. He says, I'll take your treasury. Take the fucking treasury. Now what are you going to fucking do? The way Trumka remembers it, all the expression drained from the judge's face. That was the most liberating day of my life, he said. End quote. 
So Chomka moved into AFL-CIO leadership as part of John Sweeney's reform new voice slate in what it was the first contested convention in the Federation's history. We should at some point maybe go back and do an episode on that slate and what it accomplished and why it didn't accomplish more. But it was 1995. Sweeney promised investments in organizing, big changes, and there was a lot of hope that didn't come to fruition. Over the years, I've talked to many people who rode in as part of the Sweeney charge and the struggles they had trying to reform, well, the AFL-CIO. And those struggles only continued when in 2009, Trumpka moved from secretary-treasurer to president of the Federation. As friend of the show, Eric Loomis wrote, quote, now to understand Trumpka's work here, we need to take a step back and look at what the AFL-CIO actually does. First, it is not a union. It is a federation of unions. Even major newspapers will confuse this point. It really matters. Trumpka may have been the head of the American labor movement for the last 12 years, but it is more of an honorary head than a dictator. Made up of dozens of different unions, the federation is rife with infighting. This shouldn't surprise us. Organized labor is a diverse movement. There are unions dominated by left liberals, and there are unions with a lot of conservative members. The building trades don't often have a lot in common with the public sector. The service-based unions made up of people of color and immigrants may be openly hostile to the police unions who share that contempt right back. Trump had to manage the big egos of union heads. Everything he would say was going to anger someone else in the labor movement, end quote. Or he puts it more bluntly, quote, it's a lot easier to scream organize than it is to be in Trumpka's position trying to navigate the rickety ship called the SS labor, end quote. Lots of sinking ship metaphors keep coming up here, and there are good reasons for that. Trump has been criticized by many, particularly, I hate to say it, relative newcomers to labor for being too friendly with the Democratic Party. And look, there are fair critiques to make there. But as friend of the show C.M. Lewis noted at Strike Wave, quote, Trumka and Sweeney were a break with the past, jettisoning the staid warhawks that once dominated AFL-CIO leadership. Bureaucrats like George Meany, Lane Kirkland, and Thomas Donahue were relics not fit for the purpose of leading the movement. By sweeping away the past, Sweeney and Trumka made more possible, and some of the gains which the movement has made, notably the meteoric growth of the Service Employees International Union, which Sweeney once headed, can be traced to their vision for what the movement could be. This will ultimately be his legacy and the legacy of New Voice. They failed to do what they promised, but they paved the way for future leadership to deliver. For all their failings, our movement is immeasurably better than it was in 1995, and better than it would have been had they not been elected. End quote. We will, of course, be keeping a close eye on the leadership decisions that are being made temporarily and more permanently at the AFL-CIO going forward, and we will have more to come on that subject soon. Finally, I wanted to touch on one of the things that always comes to my mind first when I think of Richard Trumka. I remember his 2008 speech calling union members to task for racist skepticism of Barack Obama. He bluntly called it what it was and called out workers who might seek to make excuses for their feelings of discomfort. Years later in Ferguson, he called on the labor movement to acknowledge its responsibility to be involved in the movement for black lives and its complicity in the killing of black and brown people by police. Those speeches wouldn't go as far as I would have, nor did AFL-CIO policy keep up with the demands made by the movement. They were nevertheless, at the moments they were made, important and unprecedented from labor's top leadership. We wanted to play you out with a little clip of one of those speeches, so here is a snippet from that 2008 speech. We can't tap dance around the fact that there's a lot of folks out there, a lot of them are good union people. 
They just can't get past the idea that there's something wrong with voting for a black man. Well, those of us who know better can't afford to sit silently or look the other way while it's happening. Now, I'm not one for, vote, for, for quoting dead philosophers, but back in the 1700s, Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Well, there is no evil that's inflicted more pain and more suffering than racism. And it's something that we in the labor movement have a very, very special responsibility to challenge. It's our special responsibility because we know better than anyone else how racism is used to divide working people. We've seen how companies set workers against worker. They throw white workers a few crumbs. They discriminate against black workers or Latino workers, and we all, we all end up losing. But we've seen something else, too. We've seen that when we have the courage, the good sense, the trade union values to cross the color line and stand together arms locked, no one, no one has ever been able to keep us down. Just as a new wave of the pandemic is starting to crest across the country, millions of Americans are careening toward a financial cliff come Labor Day. That's when federal pandemic unemployment assistance programs will expire, cutting off crucial benefits for about 7.5 million workers and their families on September 6. The expiration date is set for three programs that were originally in the CARES Act and later extended by Congress back in March. This includes the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, which extended unemployment benefits to freelancers, gig workers, and other self-employed individuals who wouldn't normally qualify for unemployment assistance. The Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation Program, which extended the duration of state unemployment insurance, which normally lasts an average of about half a year. And Federal Pandemic Unemployment Compensation, which boosted benefits across the board initially by $600 per week, but that was later cut down to $300 per week. Needless to say, this is coming at a pretty bad time. The Delta variant is spreading rapidly in many parts of the country, creating more safety risks for people returning to the workforce. And while the economy is adding a decent number of new jobs each month, economists warn that the U.S. is still short of several million jobs compared to pre-pandemic levels. The jobless people who will fall into that gap are disproportionately Black, who continue to be unemployed at far higher rates than the nationwide rate. And women and caregivers will be especially hard hit because many of them dropped out of the workforce to care for children and other family members who are infected with COVID-19. And they have only been eligible for pandemic unemployment assistance because they technically left their jobs voluntarily rather than being laid off. There's no indication that these benefits are no longer needed. In addition to significantly elevated unemployment, the long-term unemployment rate is especially severe. According to the Century Foundation, quote, 42% of unemployed workers have been out of work for six months or more, compared to 19.3% in February of 2020, a level that matches the very worst period of the Great Recession in 2011. And that doesn't even cover the 4.4 million people who had simply dropped out of the workforce as of June. That figure is often not considered when evaluating the official unemployment rate. To learn more about what's going to be happening when the financial cliff arrives on September 6th, I spoke to Andy Stetner, Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation. September 6th, 
is the end really of all of the special unemployment programs that were put into place to deal with the pandemic. This includes additional money on top of the usual benefits, also major programs that filled the gaps in unemployment benefits, programs for freelancers, programs for the long-term unemployed. There's been a lot of attention on this, you know, initially $600 extra and then $300 extra, uh, and maybe some confusion that, you know, that's the only thing that's at stake. But in fact, all of the benefits um, are coming to an end. So just to give you, you know, a sense of that, you know, there's, as the latest data we have, there's more than 12 million people on unemployment benefits. Nearly 75% of them are in one of these programs that is slated to be cut off on Labor Day. Um, so really, it's it's a, a huge number. And we really have never seen anything like this before. So many people being cut off of aid uh, all at once. Can you talk about what types of workers will be most impacted? Do we have a sense of what industry they work in? Or I mean, so we're looking at basically, you know, two groups of workers, the, you know, the long-term unemployed. These are people that lost uh, regular jobs, um, you know, mostly last year um, in, when the, in the heat of the pandemic. And it was certainly, you know, diverse uh, in terms of the industries, you know, impacted, but, you know, you know, our predominantly service sector uh, industries, face-to-face, you know, work, uh, tourism, sales, events, you know, all those type of jobs um, people lost uh, and struggled, you know, thousands of retail businesses closed uh, during the pandemic and, um, you know, most won't reopen after, you know, suffering through this period. Uh, and many of those workers, you know, remain out of work. So that's the that's you know one big group. Uh, that's you know f- at least four million of that of that group. And then the other uh, large group uh, is those who are gig workers and freelancers. Uh, you know, those who were lost jobs because of COVID itself. Um, you know, the the sickness or caring for someone because their kids' school closed and they had to leave work. Uh, and when they try to get their job back, it was no longer available for them. You know, that's another that's another huge part of of, of this group. Um, they're in this special program that was a new program called PUA, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, uh, that was you know very successful in terms of you know reaching uh, millions of, of workers. You know, and it was put into place you know to reflect the impact of public health on the labor market and. You know, when the you know president, you know, seemed to start backing away from these additional unemployment benefits in May, things look very different than they look today in terms of the public health. You know, we I believe we crossed 100,000 cases uh, again uh, in a single day. Um, so the public health situation uh, is not normalized. And there certainly are going to be individuals that continue to be compromised or impossible uh, to get work because of COVID, but there won't be a program for those individuals anymore. It seemed like the the rationale behind setting up this cutoff date, and I guess we only have this cutoff date now because there was an extension earlier this year, but it seemed like the reason behind this expiration date was that there was an anticipation that the economy would be 
well on the way to recovery or that uh, the original reasons that caused Congress to extend unemployment benefits this way uh, would have been alleviated. Is any of that true? You know, I think we've made, I think the economy has made a lot of progress. Um, you know, we've we've added back more than four million jobs. You know, since you know Joe Biden became president, the problem is just the the, the size of the hole uh, was so large that even when we made progress, I would say even almost the best case scenario um, for you know, where the job market uh, is, that there would still be millions of people uh, on unemployment benefits. You know, we're down, you know, from 20 million people on benefits as of as of recent as the end of February to 12 and a half million. That's huge progress I mean, in, in a very short period of time, you know, but, but there's no way we're going to get all the way down uh, to a, a reasonable level. And now people will be scrambling uh, to find a job, you know, with, you know, no safety net to support them in, in that effort. You know, even if there are, you know, a lot of jobs available, we know that a lot of those jobs are at the lower end. Uh, a lot of the jobs coming available are, you know, some of the frontline service work that has reopened. And, you know, I've certainly talked to people and corresponded with people, you know, that for whom that's just not the right kind of work. Um, based on their physical conditions, their prior experience, uh, et cetera, you know, that's not the right kind of work for them. And they've applied for many jobs, often have gotten interviews or close and you know, offered a job and it fell through, et cetera. So, you know, it's not as if people can find a job overnight. Many people only started looking for work once they got vaccinated. Um, and so that was for the general public, you know, April or May. And, you know, you or I or our friends, know that it can take weeks or months, you know, to find a job, especially when there's so many who are looking at all at the same time, you know, so it, we have made progress, but there was no scenario that we would make progress, you know, this quickly. And I'll be honest with you, September 6th, why did they pick it? There was, the president wanted to spend $1.9 trillion on the American rescue plan. And there were, you know, different components that they wanted to include in that plan. And they figured out how much money they had left you know, for UI benefits. Uh, and, it, you know, we were really urging them to do at least through September 30th because that would be aligned with the end of the federal fiscal year and when Congress makes other decisions. But, you know, just to save some money, um, they, they shaved it off to September 6th at a time when, you know, as we are right now, that, you know, the House of Representatives is not even in session, um, you know, to, to act on something. So it was really very arbitrary. And that is what the problem is, that, that you know, advocates, you know, really pressed for them to say, let's pick an unemployment rate, 5%. Let's pick a uh, an end of the FEMA declaration of a COVID emergency or, you know, some, you know, some other public health standard to when to end these programs. But by being arbitrary, you know, we set, we set ourselves up, you know, for this cliff, you know, just to give you a sense of perspective, uh, uh, Michelle, the, the last time we cut off these benefits, um, you know, we often have additional benefits during, uh, a negative economic time because uh, the core benefits that are there in all times, that's a state you know program. But when there's needs to be extra benefits, that's a federal responsibility. The last time we cut off federal benefits was December 2013. At that point, there was 1.3 million workers on the federal benefits. Um, that's compared to you know our estimates of seven and a half million on federal benefits when they'll be cut off. So you know 
just so much larger uh, than we have seen before uh, in terms of a cutoff. Benefits like this are usually kept on much deeper into recovery because unemployment com- becomes very quickly, you know, layoffs come quickly when the economy turns down, but reemployment usually takes a long time. Um, and Congress in generally has recognized that, you know, I think what's happened because the scale of the problem was so large, so many people um, have been on these benefits. There's a sense of sticker shock, uh, how much has been spent and a sense of idea that we want to get back to normal. Um, and, you know, People see help wanted signs when they're walking around or driving around and they think the problem is over. There has been, of course, this parallel narrative of, you know, somehow, you know, there's a labor shortage and it must be because people are just loafing around at home, sitting on their unemployment benefits. <laughs> and, and that seems to be informing uh, some of the political decision making. No, it, it absolutely has a certain idea that, you know, the benefits are too you know, generous you know, and that's why people have not come back to work. And that's why there's still open jobs. You know, we haven't seen that during the pandemic. You know, the, the benefits have changed a lot. You know, they went from 600 to 300 to zero to 300. Again, these additional benefits at those junctures, you know, the rate of job finding from multiple studies has not changed, you know, um, in, in any kind of significant matter. Um, people know that the benefits are temporary in nature, especially at this point, you know, they know, you know, they were going to be September 6th or, you know, even if they were extended, it would only be, you know, for a certain period of time. A job with benefits and security is much more valuable. So people know they need to go back to work. Uh, and they're starting to look for work. It's just unrealistic to think it's going to happen this quickly. With the expansions of, um, of unemployment benefits in you know, multiple ways, I guess, you know, from the stuff about, you know, providing benefits for caregivers to the expansion of unemployment benefits to cover gig workers. It seemed like there were a lot of good ways in which unemployment benefits were expanded. Was there ever any discussion of making any of these things permanent? The fact that for once, you know, self-employed people could access benefits like this seemed like something worth considering in terms of how we want to reform the unemployment system long term. There is serious conversation about this, and not just for gig workers, but also for undocumented immigrants. Um, you know, the excluded worker fund in New York State is two point three billion dollars for undocumented immigrants um, who lost uh, employment during the pandemic. We are trying to rethink this safety net. There have been proposals by top leaders in the Senate to have a permanent program for freelance workers that are unemployed. Uh, somebody's being studied by the Crash Research Service. I think there's a recognition that we need to find a way to provide income security uh, to those who are in the freelance economy um, who, you know, know, you know, and I've done talks to freelancers and I'm sure friends like your, you know, in- income insecurity is uh, a way of life for a lot of workers, uh, freelance workers, but it's, it, you know, involuntary employment is part of, something that can't be planned for uh, and that we can't leave it to people on their own it has social implications when they're on their own in terms of their economic security. And finally, is there anything states can do to uh, try to cushion cushion the fall off the cliff? There really, there really is. You know, states have, you know, received, you know, money through the American Rescue Plan for local relief. You know, they can use that. Um, they can use that to provide extensions on their own. There's even 50% matching under a rarely used um, 
federal program um, for high unemployment states like New York or California um, that could be, you know, taken advantage of um, through, um, you know, with the help of the American Rescue Plan dollars. There could be stimulus checks. People have called for that in several states. Um, Stimulus checks, um, targeted means-tested payments, for example, people that are running out of unemployment benefits or on food stamps. So, you know, there are things that states can do, um, you know, helping people look for work, um, helping give subsidies to um, employers to hire people that are, you know, that are long-term employed, that are needing new occupations. There's a lot that should be done. People should not be left hanging on their own. That was Andy Stentner, Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation. The nurses at St. Vincent Hospital in Massachusetts are still on strike. It is day 160 as this podcast drops, the longest nurses strike in decades, and the nurses are not giving up on their demands for safe staffing. With the news that Tenant Healthcare's CEO is stepping down, I called nurse and Massachusetts Nurses Association Vice President Marie Ritaco for an update. I guess to start out, yeah, let's get your thoughts on the Tenant CEO being no more. So I just read that, and um, I, I think I read an article from the Dallas Morning News. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's. I, I think, you know, if you look at it, what does it mean? I don't think it means anything other than, you know, he will have less days in the office. I mean, he is still going to be the person that the CEO will report to. I, I don't really think it means a whole lot for us in Worcester at St. Vincent Hospital. You know, we'll, we're still stuck in this protracted strike with an administration that just continues to posture every day uh, and try and settle this uh, in the media, tries to pressure nurses <clears throat> to come back to the hospital. We're not done. You know, we have some very significant and key pieces uh, of the puzzle uh, for our staffing that need to be addressed. They just need to come to the table and do that um, and, you know, end the rhetoric and let's get back to the serious task of bargaining in good faith and earnestly at the table with each other. Yeah. So it's been how long since you've had a bargaining meeting? Uh, We met with them. I think this Friday will be two weeks since we met Mm -hmm. with them. Yeah. Um, since we came back from Dallas, I think we had a total of four sessions. Um, and you know, since that last day at the table, um, you know, they proceeded to, uh, issue us their last best and final offer. I think it's number four. Uh (laughs) Um, so, uh, you know, not terribly moving for us. We, we need to finish this. Let's get back to the table. It was suggested to us by the federal mediator that, um, we do what's called an elevation to the national level mm-hmm. and involve, um, you know, essentially her uh, senior national advisor mm-hmm. uh, for, um, you know, negotiations that are particularly difficult. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we were very open to that. We thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, they, they're really opposed to it, you know. Uh, hopefully they will uh, reconsider that. I, I think that they will. I think it looks really bad for them if they don't. Yeah. Uh, not that they're very concerned about the optics of uh, any moves that they make. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, pressure through some uh, some of our allies and advocates uh, will uh, help move that along because we really need to get back to the table. At this point, you know, we're still 
um, looking at their last proposal, which really was no different than the previous, mm-hmm. other than they're offering more money for the people that stayed in the building through retroactive, um, you know, monies uh, mm-hmm. upon ratification. Uh, so that's not terribly moving to us, uh, but we, you know, we are uh, in constant communication with our membership um, and making tough decisions, of course, yeah. but there are some key element, elements of our proposal that have to be addressed and uh, remedied uh, with regard to staffing, you know. Um, so that's where we're at, and uh, we hope uh, to be able to, um, through the mediator, uh, get a date with them relatively soon, you know, hoping within the next uh the next week anyway to get that done to get a date nailed down and get this concluded yeah i mean this is now the longest nurses strike in the u.s in quite a while yes it is uh not what you know not the uh goal we were going for we knew it would not be an easy strike we certainly did not think that you know they would want to protract this uh, for 157 days thus far but you know they did yeah. They have deep pockets, but um, I think they underestimated the resolve and the solidarity of the nurses. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I mean, looking at where things are now sort of in the country, we're in sort of yet another wave of COVID, of the Delta variant. Um, mm. You know, healthcare continues to be sort of on everybody's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think we've learned from the last couple of years of pandemic and ongoing fights over healthcare. I've talked to nurses striking in Chicago and Pennsylvania and mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. What do you think we've learned from all of this? Well, I think nurses have learned that if they don't advocate for themselves and, the, and their patients continually, mm-hmm. um, that we cannot trust the majority of our employers to do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's very disheartening, you know, to, to know that that is essentially where we're at right now. This really has been an awakening of sorts. And not only for nurses, I think, you know, labor across the country is looking at this. We all have to be responsible for advocating for ourselves. Uh, You know, our employers, um, not all of them, but I'm sad to say, I think many of them really do care far more about, you know, their profit margin than their employees. And in the case of healthcare, than the patients. And it's just unacceptable. And if we don't take this on, it will only continue to get worse. And the pandemic really brought it into sharp focus because we literally had to fight tooth and nail for supplies. And I'm talking about supplies that were life-saving, you know, and health-preserving for the provider at the bedside. You know, talking about masks and gowns and, you know, things that should have been stockpiled. And quite frankly, I think my own employer did have a very significant stockpile and was very reluctant to give it out as freely as it should have been. Mm -hmm. So shame on them. But I hear that story from other nurses and uh, healthcare providers, too, across the country. Yeah. Um, What anything else you want people to know about what's going on with the strike right now or where things are? You know, I just think it's so obvious that um, there needs to be a reawakening in this country uh, and a reinvigoration of the labor movement. Um, it, the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction in favor of 
um, you know, corporate America and the perks that they get. These are federal dollars in many cases, especially um, with hospitals. Yeah. My own hospital corporation received almost $3 billion of CARES Act money in the beginning of the pandemic. And what they did was they proceeded to furlough. You know, I, I think I read in, in an article that uh, Tenant Healthcare Corporation furloughed about 10,000 employees um, in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, because they may have been uh, workers that were in areas that were, you know, where they did procedures that had to be suspended because of the pandemic. So rather than redeploy those employees or, you know, if not many of them, a good a good many of them um, inside the facilities that they were running to help with the hands-on care of patients, they made it exponentially worse for the caregivers left behind. And then they proceeded to pay down debt uh, to spend $1.1 billion on a chain of uh, outpatient surgery centers, you know, and they saw their stock prices soar. That's just not acceptable, you know, and the only way to address this problem is to do it through the solidarity of uh, labor. And, uh, you know, we have to take that fight on. It's, uh, you know, the numbers have really dwindled and uh, we need it now more than ever. That was Marie Ritaco, a nurse at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts. I have been waiting to bring you this interview for a while, but I'm glad to do it when I did, because for once in a very long time, I got to do an in-person sit-down with our interview subject, and I can't tell you how much I missed doing that, particularly because COVID and work were part of our discussion. This week, I bring you my dear friend Amelia Horgan, author of the book Lost in Work, Escaping Capitalism, out now from Pluto Press. Amelia's book is a practical philosophical inquiry into the question of work, and if that sounds like a contradiction to you, you are not alone. But it is a wonderful introduction and maybe gift for anyone just beginning to question the primacy of work. But it also holds gems for the nerdiest of readers, and as the absolute nerdiest of readers of books about work, I know of which I speak. Amelia and I sat down in her home in England to talk about work, freedom, union power, and what it's like to live and work with long COVID. We will put links to her book and her other writing up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. All right. So yeah, start off by um, telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got started researching work. So I've been interested in the power dynamics at work, but I guess more why people tend to neglect these in two particular spaces. And, and one is in um, academic philosophy and the other is in sort of millennial socialism or millennial left populism. And I guess within academic philosophy, there is a recent turn towards work. But what we see in that is not something that necessarily looks like work as we actually know it. People are starting to be concerned about work again. Um, but often the actual dynamics of work are not necessarily present. The other is in um, recent kind of turns to socialism, despite defeats um, in Britain in particular, Mm -hmm. where um, there is a great strong sense of anti-capitalist sentiment. Um, But what is lacking is often a bit of detail about what exactly it is that's bad or what exactly it is that's going on. Um, So those kind of two things united uh, have pushed me towards this, thinking about what work is uh, what might be bad about it and and what we can do um because there was that lack of detail i guess in in both 
in both. So it's kind of radicalizing a, a demand which seems like inculcate in society, which is like work is boring or work is frustrating or um, I'm unhappy at work and thinking, okay, well, what's going on? What can we do? (laughs) Yeah. So the major theme of of your book then ends up being this question of sort of domination and unfreedom that most people experience at work. Um, And so, yeah, can you sort of expand on why that's an important place to focus with some of these questions that you've, you've mentioned um, and maybe particularly for those of us who do jobs that we might sometimes enjoy or find meaning in. Yeah, so I think one one issue is that when work is spoken about, it becomes this kind of, uh, there's a liberal variant of talking about work, which goes, everyone should have a meaningful job. In this kind of liberal story, there are two problems with work. One is like some jobs are not as meaningful as others. People are not happy in them. And the other is uh, particular groups cannot access the better jobs, right? And of course, like this is a problem. You have um, a really unequal society. You have um, particular people, particular uh, racialized groups, particular gendered groups, and so on, excluded from particular kinds of work. And and this is bad, but this isn't really where the story ends, right? So where I think something thinking about domination or about power can come in is thinking, okay, so um, people might find all kinds of things subjectively fulfilling. is that really is that really where we want to go in? Right? Like, um, um, basically, there's a kind of, I guess, a kind of, um, in some ways, a, a critical theory understanding of the sense that people might be wrong about what it is that is going on. Um, and this doesn't mean we have to have this kind of, you know, everyone is duped. It's all false consciousness, mm-hmm. right? I think it's a bit more complicated than that. But it's fair enough to say that if we enter into discussion of work with questions of subjective fulfillment, we're not necessarily going to get very far. We're not going to think about, you know. Um, what is it about your relationship with your boss or your manager or about um, your union, right? Um, you're probably going to get, oh, okay, so, so perhaps we can have this decoration in the office or we can, you know, like maybe on Fridays we can wear different clothes, right? So it's, it's not going to take us very far if we stay on that kind of terrain. And the same is true um, with this like access to the better jobs kind of stuff. Um, and of course, it, it, you know, this tends to focus on like the high flyers as well. So instead of thinking, well, why is it that certain sectors are gendered in particular ways or racialized in particular ways, and people who belong to those groups uh, end up in those sectors, which are coincidentally <laughs> very low paid, right? right? <laughs> very precarious, sometimes even unpaid, right? Um, or straddling the formal and informal sectors. Instead, we go, okay, hmm, so there are four corporate lawyers and only one's a woman. That's so bad. We must need some mentoring, right? And and that's where it kind of comes in. So we don't think we, about... We need to lean in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, in a way, it's interesting because that kind of stuff, the lean in stuff has been kind of defeated culturally, but the underlying assumptions still kind of remain, right? Like that, that there is this, everyone's like, it's bad to be a girl boss, but everyone still seems to believe not everyone but like yeah. it is the, the background belief is, is kind of common right so it's an aesthetic defeat um mm. no one wants to be seen to be a girl boss but everyone wants to be a high-flying woman right um so <laughs> i don't know maybe that's maybe that's no, too defeatist I like, I, no I, I like the thought of it being an aesthetic defeat mm. um yeah yeah and and i guess when it comes to work with with the girl boss right um there seems to be this underlying assumption that particular groups have shared interests. And right. thinking about the workplace can really help us call into question that idea of shared interests, right? So if we take, for example, say you're a woman who's a senior manager at a nursery uh, chain, like a, you run a chain of private nurseries, right? Yeah. Um, now, your interests are going to be very different to those of the woman who's 
rely we rely on that nursery for childcare, and then to women throughout that kind of hierarchy at work, right? So, what is an interest? Um, again, is it this kind of subjective? We can all get on and we can mentor each other. <laughs> uh, perhaps this high flying woman should mentor someone, right? right? This doesn't seem very convincing to me. Instead, it's thinking about what is that kind of tug of war of power at work. Your boss wants to make more money from you. They want more from you. You want less. You want you want to not be exhausted in the, the day. And bringing that relation into light is something I think is very useful thinking about work and taking it away from that liberal variant to a more radicalized variant. Yeah, I think one of the things that I enjoy about your book is it it does sort of pull apart this question of like what is work without tripping over sort of philosophy talk that most of us <laughs> normal people don't understand. Thank you. Um, so one of my favorite passages in the book is where you use Britney Spears' song, Work Bitch, which I think lately, knowing what we know now about Britney, has even new sort of relevance. Mm -hmm. um, but to explain sort of the different ways that she uses the term work in that song, to explain like the different ways that we as a society use the term work. Um, so I wonder if you could like unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, so that passage is also kind of, it's my being silly with philosophy because philosophy trains you to do these kind of lists of necessary and sufficient conditions and, you know, this kind of thing. And thinking, well, this is not really, this is not fun for people to read. This is not intelligible to most people. But right. I think thinking about how we can tear apart how things are practically spoken about is really helpful. So Brittany in this song um, there's like a multitude of, of, of different ways work is referred to. And I think this tracks the vagueness or the different meanings of work that are used by people, right? So we have work as in you work for money. That's how you can afford like a, a house in France, a Maserati, you know, and so on. Um, there's there's work in the sense of kind of just general effort. Um, and there's work in a specific sense of kind of embodied um, dancing effort as well, right? So there's at least three there. And, and I've done a similar thing with, the song work from home and there's even more in there mm -hmm. but I wanted it to have a bit, bit more of like a timeless <laughs> timeless kind of element I wanted someone to be able to pick up the book in like 2030 and not be like what is this song work from home I love that song <laughs> it is on my book playlist um which we will link to for this episode yes. um but yeah but Britney Britney is forever um yeah and yeah and like I don't know. I just keep thinking about Britney's conservatorship and mm. the way that she is just like literally in forced labor at mm. this point, right? She doesn't get to say no to this yeah. stuff because somebody's making her decisions for her and keeping her money. Yeah. It's 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 really horrifying how the actual kind of practice of celebrity and of um celebrity business, right, um, mm -hmm. creates these kind of relations and creates this extremely intense um, exploitation. Yeah. Um, that's really troubling. And the fact that this can happen, um, and of course, like, uh, you know, the fact that, 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 that she's a woman, the fact that there are kind of um, issues relating to ableism as well and this mm -hmm. kind of stuff, they all, they all combine together. But it's this really heightened position of, of someone whose existence makes money and how profitable that is to people around them and how open that is to exploitation, right? Yeah. Um, it's really horrifying. And I mean, I don't know, I'm not someone who's like, you know, petit poor celebrities, but like it, it must be an awful situation for anyone, not only, not even yeah. Britney, like any celebrity to be in because you have people who every possible interaction with you is like sellable, right? right. Um, what does that do to your life? What does that do to your possibility of living? Yeah. Like living at all, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, Britney digression aside, <laughs> um, I also find like the Kesha thing where like her fucking like, oh, abusive yeah. ex like owned That's her awful. recordings. And yeah, it's just yeah. like, if I can understand, like we can explain exploitation through like Britney's conservatorship. We mm. can explain like alienation through Kesha's not owning her recordings. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, anyway, um, whatever. So unemployment, which is a topic that has been big in recent, mm. the last year and a half, because a lot of people have been made unemployed by the pandemic. Um, we sort of talk about unemployment as this like sort of moral and spiritual failing and also this like desperate state to be avoided. And maybe some of that has changed in the last year. But um, yeah, I really like the way that you talk about it in the book. And yeah, I just wanted to sort of talk about like, what should we understand about the way that unemployment is sort of described and politicized? Mm. So I think there's a bit of a history we can tell here. Um, and it's kind of a bit sketchy, but I think it's fair to say that um, employment goes from being seen as a kind of social failure. Why hasn't the government created more jobs? Why aren't there more jobs? What is right. going on in the economy? To a personal failure by bad actors somewhere out there who right. are who are who've done the wrong thing, who've let themselves down, who've let them, their families down. Um, it's very gendered. Um, that's part of that history too. Um, it's seen as particularly masculine failing. Um, mm-hmm. Although you know that's as often because women end up in tiny little jobs, right, rather than having a kind of a bigger job. But I think the important point for me is that unemployment, just as employment, is a political situation shaped by the law, shaped by cultural ideas and norms. Um, And what we've seen is in recent years, unemployment being culturally kind of sanctioned and the benefit system becoming more punitive. And the situation moves from one of it's badger in this position to you must now prove that you do not deserve to be in this position. Right. So you must do all of this work for free. You must come uh, come to this particular meeting where you'll be sanctioned. You must, you know, behave in this particular way. Um, right. And at the same time, the, the actual amounts of money you can get are massively reduced. So it's always really interesting reading about, um, I guess, artists or just like anyone kind of activist in the, in the, in the eighties where the doll is like, I mean, it's not enough to like live really well on, but it's enough to live and not be worried. Right. Yeah. Whereas now if you're, on universal credit, um, you can't stop and breathe for a second, right? It's not possible. So I think that's quite telling of, of that difference. Is it becomes this kind of stigmatized, conditional thing rather than, you know, what, what it was in the past, which wasn't, I'm not saying it was great in the 80s because obviously it wasn't, but, but the stigma around it has really changed. It's not seen as what is happening in society? Where are the jobs? Like what's going on? Yeah. What's happened to the sector? It's become what is this guy doing? Or what is this woman doing? They're letting, she's letting down her kids. He's letting down his wife, you know, yeah. whoever. Um, th- that seems like a really important change, the way people are made to feel ashamed, um, made to feel that it's their fault, yeah. when <laughs> like almost certainly isn't. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think um, one of the things that, that sort of give me a little bit of hope around this, around the pandemic, is that like it was so obviously clear that all of these people thrown out of work. Like I remember that mm. sort of line from the first week of lockdown that like the unemployment line just went straight up, right? Yeah. It was just like a cliff, like we went off a cliff. And so it was fairly obvious that it wasn't anybody's fault that they were yeah. thrown out of work. Um, that was particularly in the US, like here you had a furlough scheme that was a bit um, less just chucking people off a cliff. Yeah. But in either case, like you had a less moralized time of not being in work for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I think, I think I'd agree with that. I think there are attempts by the government and, and business and so on to push back and create mm-hmm. one of the things that I can't remember which government minister said, but one of them said was, you know, we need to wean people off furlough. They become addicted. To mm-hmm. So that you can see attempts. Yeah. I think you're completely right. That there was this sense of this is not your fault, right? <laughs> this is not whose fault is this? Yeah. Um, but there is, there are these kind of um, attempts by 
people in power to take that narrative back to individual shame. Um, Whether it will be successful is a different question, right? Because I think people will think, okay, but I know, you know, that shop down the road just fired everyone for no reason, right, at the start of the pandemic, and that doesn't seem very fair. Or they'll think, you know, I know that I lost my job, or, you know, I was on furlough, and I wasn't, like, I was also made to go in, even though I was supposed to be on furlough, right? Like, people have become aware of this kind of stuff, and it'll be interesting to see whether that persists and how long it does for. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, in the States, we have different states throwing people off of unemployment, which our podcast listeners know is my favorite thing to rant about. Um, It's interesting to think about like that being a period where, right, for a lot of people, maybe the only time that like having some time off of work Mm -hmm. was not like immediately experienced as both like a catastrophic personal failure and as a life threatening experience yeah um yeah work sucks um (laughs) but this actually it leads into the next question that I wanted to ask which um I'm going to start off with because we were on an event last week and you made a joke about you know primitive accumulation has really done you dirty which was hilarious uh but I wanted to bring it up also because I I think we don't think about enough this sort of central dispossession that required us all to work in the first place. Mm. Um, And you write about it in the book in in part sort of using the history of garment making in the garment industry. Um, yeah. yeah, so I wonder if you could sort of talk about how yeah. primitive accumulation has done us dirty. <laughs> so so I think I think this was there's there's a lot to this idea, right? And, and the idea of primitive accumulation is um you know there's uh so capitalism depends on the separation of of particular group of people from the means of producing, the means of sustaining their lives, right? And and it becomes market dependent, and people sell their labor power to be able to to be able to afford other commodities, right? And this requires you to be separated, and that that separation is kind of the subject of this primitive accumulation. And I think what's really useful about this idea is it also allows us to talk about capitalism um, and being a proletarian not just in relation to work, particular mm-hmm. kinds of work, because I think that can often become quite vexed and quite morally fraught. And people mm-hmm. are like, who is this revolutionary subject? Is it this guy in overalls or is it this woman who's a nurse? Like it, yeah. it becomes very competitive and very confused, I think. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's hel- Sometimes that is helpful to think, okay, who has power in the situation? But it really has to be quite concrete situations. And, and often it becomes kind of scrabbling around in kind of a moralized way. But I think what, what this idea of this earlier dispossession does is that um, it takes us back to the fact that the reason people are in the working class is not because they're doing work, not because they're doing wage work or unwaged work, but because they must work. They're in the state of needing to work. And there's a great article um, by um, Michael Denning about, about this, which I think is a really helpful way of thinking about um, what it is to be working class. Because again, this question becomes very vexed and tied up in contemporary debates in the left as well. Like, yeah. is UBI bad or is it got jobs guarantee bad and so on? And, and it becomes quite confused. So I think it's worth us thinking, you know, actually what makes someone working class, you know, it's not that the work, work isn't important because it, it really is as, as a political site, but to, you know, it, it also goes back to that earlier dispossession as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worth thinking about that too. Yeah, I, I um, comrade Joshua Clover in Riot Strike Riot, right, reminds us that the word proletariat is means without reserves, right? Mm. It does not mean worker. Yeah, it means people who don't have anything else. Yeah, and and I think I think um, in a way it also helps us uh, decentralize and historicize um, the particular moment we're in, in a way, mm. and verse 
kind of work activity and capitalism as a whole and how much that might be in the informal sector. Yeah. It might not look like the kind of waged work we, um, that, that appeared to be the dominant form um, in Europe in the 19th, uh, in the late 19th and, and, and middle, kind of to the middle 20th century. Right? Things might be kind of different. Um, it doesn't mean that they necessarily are, but I think it helps us kind of provincialize that European story a bit, which I think is is, is helpful. Um, <laughs> and it's something that I'm not always that good at doing because it is, you know, it does require us to move out of some of that conceptual framework we've we're used to. Yeah. So, um, continuing the pandemic theme a bit, right? We we talked a lot about essential workers, key mm-hmm. workers, right? Like, what is the essential work that needs to keep going when everybody else is on lockdown? Um, and you've pointed out really well that like that division into essential and non-essential was essentially left up to the boss. Mm. Um, sometimes the boss got like Donald Trump to make a declaration that their workplace was essential, but you know, mostly the boss got to decide and nevertheless, I do think it's, it was useful in a sort of social reproduction theory kind of way, I guess, to mm. talk about like what work is essential um, mm. and thinking about like the way that workers themselves use the discourse, right? So the Amazon workers went on strike from the warehouse saying like, look, man, I don't mind like sending people medicine and like Mm -hmm. clothes, but like, and food, but like, I just packed a rubber chicken. (laughs) You don't, I'm not risking my life to send you a rubber chicken, you know? Uh, I brought this up so many times, but it's so like, right? Like the way that workers themselves were experiencing their work. Yeah, or that the person in the Baskin and Robbins outfit being like, "How the fuck am I essential worker?" The mm-hmm. Snapchat story, why riches again? <laughs> yeah, where they were wearing like the, the ice cream cone yeah, costume, yeah, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's like you are not a, you are not yeah. ice cream, you're not essential. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, so I think I think you're so right about the usefulness of that public discourse. It's a legitimation story for for particular struggles, right? You can say we are essential, or this is not essential. Why are we being made to do that? And that's really helpful on the ground. Um, you know, and, and that's thing that 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 nurses have been able to do around like issues of training and training costs and um, pay rises and so on. I think that 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 kind of thing to draw on is so helpful. I guess it's it's interesting to think about how we can have on this one hand this this public discourse which does have this openness in which people are saying, well, what really is essential? Yeah, I think it's it's a sticky thing though because it's like. How do we know what's truly essential? It's a hard question. I think yeah. it's very easy to say this rubber chicken is not a, is, is essential. And that this rubber chicken <laughs> is, is not simply essential. Not essential. Um, yeah. But then on the other hand, we have um, the the fact that our employers are able to just completely sit above this public discourse, right? Right. So we have this public this public discourse, and I think you are right that there is this openness, this contestability, and that's really positive, and, and workers have been able to use that. Um, but then on the other hand, we have employers saying no, it's essential. You're going in, right? Yeah. Um, so it shows it shows how we need to, and 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 this is what you know. The thing, the thing that that you've been saying forever before it was the, <laughs> thing, the, the thing to say is this is why we need union power, right? Like yeah. public discourse is all well and good, right? But yeah. it doesn't matter because if you can't make your boss say okay, right? If right. you can't make your boss agree, it, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Yeah, and if your boss has Donald Trump on speed dial to get him to declare that, like, you know, meatpacking plants in yeah. wherever that are mostly staffed by, you know, recent immigrant workers are essential and therefore that doesn't matter how abusive the conditions get. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. What? You mean it's all about power? No way. <laughs> um, but I'm going to continue the discourse theme here because um, you talk about wages for housework, which is another one of my favorite subjects in the book and talk about it as a way that politicizing the idea of 
essentially the definition of work, right? What is work? To mm. argue that housework is work um, became an important side of political struggle. But then, of course, we've got these, you know, sort of endless internet battles about, like, <laughs> what is emotional labor? Um, it's gotten so broad that it's essentially meaningless in a lot of contexts, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I wonder if you want to talk about, like, some of the lessons and pitfalls of these struggles, again, over sort of defining what is work and where their usefulness maybe begins and ends, mm. which is obviously, like, no, you do not get to define, like, this is where, <laughs> but you know what I mean, like, yeah. So this is something that really fascinates me um, because there is this this creep, right? This tendency to describe more and more things as work, right? right. And and for me, the question is, what, did, what are people doing when they're saying this? Yeah. Because sometimes people, I mean, sometimes people will flat out say, me replying to your tweets is work, therefore pay me, right? But I think often people are saying something which is slightly more sympathetic, right. which is they're trying to say, okay, look at the gender division of labor here, right? right. But then the problem is it all gets lost in this muck of like, what is work? So this is, I mean, it's quite a, it's not exactly a kind of pedantic worry, but it's more like because of this vagueness of what, what work is, because it has these plurality of meanings even before it gets to this creep, like the problem is, is that um, it's invoked as if we know we all are on the same page about what declaring something to be work actually means, right? Mm-hmm. And and I mean, I think I think there's a few, a few directions that I think are super important when it comes to this. One is like addressing this kind of residue of exclusion from from the proper movement, from what counts as the working class movement. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Wages for Housework is really doing, right? It's right. saying like, we are not a feudal remnant. We're women, we're workers. We're not something that's not part of capitalism. We are part of the struggle, right? Yeah. And I think that's what's so important about that is claiming that kind of status as a political actor. Um, and that's obviously not present when like a liberal columnist is like, my husband, <laughs> my husband... <laughs> My husband won't pick up his socks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or like my husband like won't call the cleaner and explain to her that she needs to clean this oh, thing God. differently, right? You know, this kind of thing, yeah. right? Um, that that isn't about well, it's not, you know, this is not kind of joined up to the conjectural struggle in the same way, right? Yeah. So I mean, I think I think there's a tendency to describe things as work. And and it and it and it makes sense on the left as well, because that is the framework we have. That is right. that is a framework. It make, we can use it to make sense of exploitation, of unfairness, of people's mm. uh, feelings of alienation. It might not always be the best one, right? Like yeah. it might be that that's the one we got at hand, but it's actually not the best. So we need some new ones. Um, um, and then, of course, the other thing that it would be kind of remiss to say is that there's the actual legal definition of work, which is really relevant for this question, but is missed right. out, right? Often a lot yeah. in this discussion of emotional labor or, or you know, is it okay to say something's work? Because, like, you know, sex work is uh, only partially kind of legally um, considered work and that right. has all kinds of problems and then bits of the uh, kind of gig work and so on as well. Like, like, there is, we have, mm-hmm. again, we have like our kind of the left's conception of work and then we have the state's conception of work. Right. And and it's also us trying to get a better conception of work, a legal framework that yeah. allows um, workers to demand their rights as workers. Right. Um, so there's kind of a few points of attack. But I, I think, yeah, I think avoiding that creep and thinking about like, thinking about strategy in the moment. And this is, again, where like unions and the movement come in, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like it's all well and good for me to be like, here you go. Here is the philosophical definition, which I find the most satisfying. Um, but right. actually like on the ground, people might find a particular one helpful. Well, and also like there are, you know, the, the thing is that something can be work and not work yeah. in different moments. Yeah, it can yeah. be work and not work in different contexts. Like I, we are recording this in your house where I have come to visit you because you are my friend and I love you. And also while I'm here, so we're recording work. this yeah. thing, which is our job. Yeah. And so, so you know, it's contradictory and, and that, that is, but present, we're going to yeah. go on for the rest of the afternoon to continue to talk about all of this stuff because this is what we talk about because we're nerds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. 
you know. And I think as, as societies become more complex and as work is, resembles more and more social activity, right. that wovenness is more common, right? right. And, and, and in, in, even in jobs I've had, which are more, more formally jobs, right? Like that stuff is present. Like, you yeah. know, or if you think about social reproduction, at what point are you uh, reproducing your child's labor power? And at what point are you playing with it, right? Like it's not yeah. easy to draw the line. Yeah. Um, that's the nature of a complex society. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's, yeah, I think, I think the, the sort of questions of inequalities that people are often looking for, mm. um, again, sort of back to what we were saying about like recognizing sort of proletarian as not just a person who works mm. um is like work is not always the best language to describe inequalities in relationships and yeah. friendships and in, in you know whatever existence we live <laughs> oh, to get too philosophical um, but yeah <laughs> so exactly yeah. and i think yeah. about like the uber drivers right like one of the big fights that uber drivers all over the world are having with uber is to be paid for all of the time the app mm -hmm. is on and not just the time where they specifically have a fare that is paying yeah um and this is what like courts the court here ruled right yeah. that they have to do that and uber is just flat out refused yeah um yeah, and that is a struggle about a legal definition of what is work and what is working time. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean the law is never going to deliver us exactly what we want, but it, it's 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 a really important terrain of struggle. And I think we can look to things like like precarious workers organizing and like sex workers organizing, where they have this dual track strategy, right? They mm -hmm. on the one hand are really pushing court cases. Um, and trying to get good rulings on that, but they're also mobilizing workers at the same time. And right. That that is really important, I think. Yeah. So asking you a question that comes to us from a friend of mine who was listening to, again, this other event that we were on um, and was asking, you know, so many people have so little under capitalism that like when you start to try to problematize work or the family, um, you can, you know, get people shutting down very quickly. So how do we think about sort of strategically how to talk about this stuff? Because like, you know, People who are listening to this podcast are probably already interested in the labor movement, but maybe are being challenged by the idea that like work, it's bad actually. Um, yeah. Right. Or people who might pick up your book um, are, you know, open to the idea that there's something wrong with work, but like mm. are sort of brought up short by the idea that like work is fundamentally unfree. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a hard sell in a way, right? Because you're not even like, okay, so <laughs> there's this background on freedom that rules your life. And that that's quite a hard thing yeah. to like think about, right? Um I mean I think I think this is a central question because we do have this the stats are ambiguous on, on what people think about work. Like a lot of people enjoy like report enjoying their jobs and and, and so I think in theoretically it's very easy to say. Like, okay, well, this isn't about subjective preferences. This is about objective reality. But how do we as a movement talk to people, talk to people who aren't in the know? Right. For me, it's like, even in the most fulfilling job or the thing you want to do the most, there will always be an element that frustrates you, right? Say you're a professional musician, yes. right? You 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 get to do the thing you love. You get to play the, the instrument you love, right? <laughs> Say you're Britney Spears. Say you're Britney you Spears. Go back yeah. to Britney. Yeah, but, but, but even then, like, or even in kind of less extreme cases, you will not be choosing the songs you play, right? right. Like you say you hate Brahms, but you must like always play Brahms, right? Mm -hmm. like there's all right. kinds of possible moments where even in your dream job, and, and this is something you've thought about a lot <laughs> yeah, more than yeah. I have, but like, <laughs> but like even in that kind of dream situation, that fulfillment yeah. is frustrated, right? Like you may might mainly have it, but there will be some kind of like thing to grip onto. In some ways, the challenge is 
often elsewhere. It's with people who are thinking, okay, this job is shit, but the next one will be good, right? Mm -hmm. How do you convince that person? I think that's where a lot of consciousness is stuck. It's thinking, okay, well, it's the problem just about this one job. Um, It's not about like capitalism as a whole or or the way work is done as a whole. It's about like, oh, my boss is a dickhead or, you know, uh, not the system of bosses, just this one guy, right? Right. Or like, oh, if I were in, if I had that manager instead of this one, it would be different. And I think that's where consciousness often gets stuck. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's how do we get in at that point? Um, Because people do report a great degree of frustration, but also fulfillment. And it's again, it's always very easy to say, but you would be so much more fulfilled if we also had this other stuff, right? And I, I very much believe it to be true. But you commonly <laughs> just like go up to people and say that, right? I guess mm-hmm. you show it to them by doing yeah. stuff together. But it, it is, a, it's a really uh, naughty question with no easy, no easy answer. So it's a good question to ask. Yeah, I think um, I, I was just thinking about this. Um, one of the organizers of Games Workers, Southern California, who was talking, we were talking about, you know, the, the, one of the challenges of organizing video game programmers is he was saying, you know, he's like the distance between now yeah, my job's all right mm-hmm. and fuck this job I quit mm-hmm. is really narrow, but it's, that's the space where like an organizing campaign can actually work. And especially in an, in a, an industry that has both sort of high turnover. And if you are the programmer, you have an in-demand skill, um, catching people in that space yeah. and saying, maybe the next job won't be any better. Um, so back to our favorite subject, um, you wrote this wonderful piece about rest recently, Mm -hmm. which our listeners will know I plugged a few episodes ago. Um, and recently in the Olympics and before we've seen athletes, um, particularly Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, um, stepping back from competition, refusing to work essentially to prioritize their mental health. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the reaction to them and the way we've sort of moralized rest even as something you have to earn or deserve or use mm. in order to make yourself a better worker next time around. Yeah. So I've, I found watching this super fascinating because I think it also speaks to problems in elite athletics and elite sports that we can also see in other careers um, where you are made to, you know, where there is extreme um, hierarchy. Uh, people are put in positions where they have very little power and very little control over what they do um, and are made to risk quite a lot and where like abuse is seems like pretty much endemic in a lot of elite sports right um certainly in gymnastics yeah and 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 you know very young people are made to stay away from their families and stay like you know live elsewhere and 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 this kind of this kind of stuff is um yeah and and this this like sense of powerlessness that that and reality of powerlessness that a lot of athletes have um and seeing that kind of uh and, and also of their public image as well right and seeing that kind of combated like so directly is, is really really powerful um i think i mean i think that this kind of sense of like is it is it okay to quit right even if it, you're even if you're one of the most important moments ever it's, it's like a good kind of lesson for people right yeah. um but i think it points to the conditions of dream jobs and careers and, and and it also reminds me a lot of it's not as extreme in academia but there are similar situations where you have kind of superstars and you have um people with a huge amount of power over the people's future and this right. just lends itself to 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 people pushing boundaries and people um behaving really badly because people can't really complain right um yeah. i guess the solution for, for academia is better better working conditions and and i don't necessarily know what it would look like th- for athletics but yeah. that th- you know there needs to be something done to address not athletic sports as a whole yeah. <laughs> for elite sports as a whole but there needs to be something to address the situations of 
extreme um, difference of power that, that that people find themselves in, and and it's good to see that public discussion opening up. And I hope it I hope it focuses on that power um, rather than just kind of um, individuals, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, because right, you see Simone Biles and, and Naomi Osaka, who are two of I mean, Simone Biles is the absolute best that has ever done that sport, oh, yeah. and Naomi like Osaka really, really, is right? yeah. yeah by like a huge margin. Yeah. Um, she actually there was a wonderful article interview with her where she talked about she's like very matter of factly was like they don't score my stuff as high as they should because they like and she said they devalue my skills mm. because. No one else can do it. Yeah, we mess up the scale, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And so they literally devalue her skills. Mm. Anyway, um, it is not surprising to me that she's very smart talking about this. Mm. And Naomi Osaka is also one of the best in the world at what she does. So they're able to step back now Mm. in a way that they probably weren't when they were, you know, 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 15. Children, right? Yeah. Yeah. So continuing on on sort of the theme of rest and stepping back... um, you finished writing this book and are touring this book while dealing with long COVID. Mm. And I'm sure we have listeners that are also dealing with this and we haven't talked about it probably as much as we should on the show. Um, so I, yeah, I wanted to know if you could, you know, talk to us a little bit about what's that been like and how it's changed your relationship to work. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty tough and I've had, I think it's, worth saying the kind of best possible conditions for recovering which are like sick pay basically unlimited at the rate I would have been paid anyway and ex- like an extremely understanding employer um and um like a partner who basically did everything that I used to do for me um I had sec- pretty secure housing um and that made it possible to focus on rest um but that is something that the majority of people will just not have, right? Like people, um, you know, people don't have access to sick pay or their sick pay is completely inadequate um, or they've been, or they end up being fired or they don't get more hours at their job, right? They don't have that, this kind of stuff and they can't, they can't rest even though they need to. Um, in terms of my own kind of relationship to my work, I think one thing it's made me really think about is because it slowed down my um kind of mental processing and, and the, the physical stuff has been tough but it gets better and you know um in a way physical pain is 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 horrible <laughs> and difficult to deal with but um but it's quite isolated you can kind of isolate it sometimes um but the mental stuff has been harder in some ways because they're just feeling kind of much mentally slower and and some of that might be because of the nature of the pandemic, right? We're not in those complex social situations. We're in like situations which are very different. Yeah. Um, you're talking to someone like on WhatsApp or you're talking to someone on Zoom and you can like leave the conversation and the information is, is different um, to kind of talking to a group of people in real life. But I found that the thing that's been kind of hardest and has made me kind of readjust the most is uh, the way I used to be before, which was to focus on the kind of like, don't be too mean to myself a kind of conversational showing off or like a particular style of engagement which was like clever clever or like you know like really um uh quick rather than thinking longer term or thinking in a sustained way and the thing that long covid has kind of made me do is like i can't do things quickly i have to do things slowly but that actually has been kind of good i kind of miss being able to be quite so quick but being able to think over a sustained period of time is a skill that I didn't really have. And I think that is because of the nature of 
contemporary like work, the temporality of capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. It is of contemporary capitalism. It is always on. Um, you feel this strong sense that you must be using your time well, that you must be the right kind of guardian of your your kind of human capital, right? Yeah. Um, and basically being forced to be a shitty guardian of my human capital, like to not be good at it, um, <laughs> was quite helpful. And I think I think I've also I think there's a tendency that, that we have on the left and, and it, even in the kind of liberal mainstream to really focus on brilliance and, and cleverness and mm-hmm. outstandingness. And I think this is kind of sad because just statistically, the majority of people are not going to be anywhere near that, right? Like, it's a matter of We fact. are not going to be Simone Biles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the majority of people are average, right? And I, I think there's often this kind of, um, you know, this sort of liberal um, invocation of, oh, this is just like a mediocre person or mediocre white man is a normal thing. And, and I get what's being said there, right? Because the idea is that this guy isn't able to see that he's had it easy. Right. And that, that seems true. But I also think I worry that we worry that we condemn this mediocreness and we expect kind of brilliance from everyone all the time. Um, and this is a strange kind of, kind of a strange, a strange realization I've had during the long COVID thing, which is that like this slowness, there are things to value other than this kind of quickness, this brilliance. Um, and that these are in, in kind of contemporary work that the quick speed and the flexibility that's demanded of people. Um, is valued but also kind of the way it shapes our our discourse on on who is a person to be valued right Mm -hmm. this sense that 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 you know someone being mediocre is is bad and i'm not i mean this isn't this isn't pro like mediocre men but mediocre people in general (laughs) it's okay to be it's okay to be average right and i think i think that's something that i've really thought about a lot during during this period of of ill health is um is the way that you know what is it that we as a society value in a person I mean, there's been an interesting discussion about um, about this in British higher education because um, uh, big raft of scholarships have, have been made available at um, Cambridge by Stormzy for um, black students, and obviously right. this is this is good in, in in some ways. But the problem is, is that you know it encourages the university to take it seriously, but then at the same time, like. Um, you know, what about other? What about people who are never going to go to Cambridge, right? Yeah. Like, you know, that is the vast majority of people right. and and it's you know what what you know this is yeah this is the thing i've been thinking about a lot is just um there is i think a even on the left this this attachment to excellence this kind of uh, underlying belief in um uh, kind of individualistic meritocracy um mm-hmm. and and that is um i think worth us considering how we can uh genuinely uh, meet each other's needs um and like support each other's abilities um, yeah. across like uh, kind of you know a different distribution of skills and talents um, without like um, without relying on this kind of underlying narrative of excellence. Um, right. It reminds us that these are skills, mm. right? That this is not just an inherent part of who you. Are, but it's actually a thing that you learned and were shaped into learning by a culture that valued those things. Yes. And when something happens that makes you no longer able to use those particular skills in the same way, um, right? Whether that's a, you know, a physical injury, an illness, mm. whatever, um, it reminds us like that these things are not just sort of magical gifts yeah. Yeah, for not. some people, but they're actually things that like were learned and trained mm. and difficult. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I, that I learned in this period of still ongoing, but getting better ill health is, 
that people do really want to care for each other, but their abilities to do so are frustrated by um, a lack of free time, that, that they're denied autonomy over their time, um, and also by a belief that the best kind of care to receive, or the best support to receive, is um, comes from your immediate family, your partner, or from um, the market, right? Like you pay it, you pay for it. Um, and, 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 you know, this, I think this comes back to this question of essential and need. Um, capitalism shapes any society, but, but um, shapes the idea that we have about an appropriate way to meet a need. Mm-hmm. Um, and the need for care, for support is understood generally um, in the kind of societies we live in as a, something like an exchange. Um, and there's two ways to receive it free as a gift from someone extremely close to you or paid for by someone um, kind of below you in the hierarchy. Right. Mm-hmm. And we might probably <laughs> can definitely problematize both of these. Right. And right. think what would a different way of caring look like? Because yeah. people do want to care. Um, people want to care for each other. I mean, I really struggled with this feeling that care had to be an exchange and that I wasn't in a position to give anything back to anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, OK, well, I can't accept that. Like, I can't accept anything because I don't know whether I'm going to be able to be there for that person. So it's interesting how that sense of the appropriate way to meet needs, what we might see, see as, you know, feeling um, healthy or feeling secure, seem like pretty genuine human needs, right? But the ways in which we have deemed collectively acceptable to meet them yeah. um, should be kind of problematized. And that's something I've thought about a lot. Um, I've thought about a lot during the pandemic. Yeah. I talk about that for a long time okay but we're gonna wrap up um is there anything else you wanted to share with our listeners other than where they can find you on the terrible thing that is social media (laughs) um which you're taking a break from (laughs) 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 they should definitely yeah they're welcome to follow me on twitter um i'm trying to think um we had a we had a great event um the other week and if people people wanted to follow sheffield needs a pay rise and um yeah. And better than zero if they wanted to get a kind of insight onto some of the interesting things that's going on and yeah. kind of very like place based uh, trade union mobile organizations in, in bits of Britain. You should definitely check that out. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Amelia Horgan, author of Lost in Work. You can find links to her book and her other writings on our show page at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the stories that we read and liked but did not write. My pick for ARG is The Ashcan School Painted the American Working Class by Billy Ananya and Jacobin. It's an intricate portrait of a group of rebellious painters at the start of the 20th century who depicted working class Americans with candor, dignity, humor, and sophistication. I was intrigued when I came across this piece because I teach about the Ashcan School in my course on the history of New York at City College, usually in the context of the emergence of modern art and how artists responded to the Industrial Revolution and its attendant social problems. But I knew relatively little about the political worldviews of these pioneering artists. 
In an era of revisiting famous artists and uncovering something problematic or unsavory about their past, it was refreshing to see that the Ashcan School artists had political sensibilities that matched their aesthetics, reflecting the cultural landscape from which they had emerged in offering a critical perspective on the social upheaval brought about by industrialization and urbanization. And they were perhaps one of the first cultural movements in the U.S. to consciously claim and invert the meaning of a pejorative term. Anania writes, quote, they got their nickname from a complaint within the socialist publication, The Masses, where some of them worked as illustrators. A staff member lamented that the artists were publishing too many, quote, pictures of ash cans, unquote, a reverence to their unsentimental depictions of city life and non-traditional proletarian subjects. Far from disheartened, the artists positively identified with the critique and the name stuck. The Ashcan School artists came of age in a rapidly changing America. Many of them grew up in the Midwest during a time of massive development, and they drew their inspiration from the crevices of cities, the docks, the alleys, the windows and rooftops of working-class neighborhoods. They worked a little like journalists at the time. They chronicled the day-to-day lives of working people, including the theaters and other recreational sites where they were able to find pleasure outside the drudgery of their everyday work. Anania writes, quote, The artists spent much of their free time wandering downtown Manhattan and frequenting pubs like McSorley's in the Haymarket. Paintings from this time depict the variety of life unfolding around them, unquote. Their techniques were subversive as well, tearing down artistic conventions in order to, quote, uplift the simple charm of city life. The artist's philosophy was thoroughly anathema to prevailing 20th century aesthetics, which made their work all the more radical for its time, unquote. George Lukes, for example, painted small children gathered on a bread line, rendered us in a smoky, dark fog as if they were sublimating from the concrete that framed their tiny huddled bodies. Paintings like this were often in dialogue with documentary photography of that time. The earliest photojournalists, like Lewis Hines, would depict the rough lives of child laborers in unflinching detail. One of my favorite paintings of the era, George Bellows's Men of the Docks, is a subdued depiction of the Brooklyn waterfront during the winter. A cluster of dock workers stands across from the city skyline, flanked by a giant steamship amid a snowy, icy river. Those towering totems of industrial civilization threaten to overshadow the workers, but Bellows intentionally foregrounds them instead, placing them in a sheath of sunlight that looks almost biblical against the snowy metal and concrete backdrop. The soft, blurred images of the men's bodies subtly challenge the viewer to focus on the human element of an otherwise cold and brutal landscape. In their political lives, the Ashcan artists were even more radical than their paintings suggested. Bellows and Robert Henri joined anarchist circles. Ashcan artists covered the pages of the groundbreaking Marxist periodical The Masses with stunning illustrations of labor struggles and the carnage of World War I. John Sloan ran for New York State Assembly on the socialist ticket. Their style of social realism was inspired by muckraking journalists like Upton Sinclair, who fought to expose the horrific labor conditions of the immigrant working class in the meatpacking industry. One of the founders, Henri, who grew up on the plains of Nebraska before moving to New York City in his late teens, was inspired by newspaper illustrators who depicted current events before photography became a mainstay of print journalism. According to Ananya, quote, socializing with the artist reporters gave Henri a sense that fine art could cross into the realm of social reform, much as it had in Europe a few decades earlier. I like to think that the Ashcan school were as much reporters as they were artists, but the legacy of their attempt to create a socially relevant school of art faded amid other sweeping trends in painting during the early 20th century. The 1913 Armory Show, one of the first showcases of modern art in the U.S., featured some of the Ashcan artists, but their realist paintings were soon eclipsed by European modernism, pioneered by artists like Picasso and Marcel Duchamp. 
Anania notes that art historians typically overlook the politics of the Ashcan school. He writes, quote, Museums have largely depoliticized their legacy since the 1960s. Many of them are lumped together as foundational American realists. If one were to adhere to this narrative, one might miss the other radical elements in their work. For example, the fact that Bellows was portraying nude men in shirtless boxers at a time when doing so attracted homophobic backlash, or that Emma Goldman once described Henri as, quote, an anarchist in his conception of art and its relation to life, unquote. And indeed, Henri wrote in his book, The Art Spirit, about how artists worked at the intersection of the past and future. He told young artists, quote, know what the old masters did, know how they composed their pictures, but do not fall into the conventions they established, unquote. In retrospect, we can revisit the Ashcan school work today and see how radical they were in light of the later generations of artists that built on their legacy by creating even more intentionally subversive art or in the realism of the New Deal imagery of the Works Progress Administration. Working class people were not merely props in the Ashcan School's depictions of urban life. The artists tried to articulate the humanity of their subjects in an art world that was often unwelcoming to the real life people in their paintings. Not much has changed in elite art circles since then, perhaps, but now we can get a new appreciation for painting as a revolutionary act. I really wished I'd been able to cover the Activision Blizzard workers walkout when it happened, and then I read Cecilia D'Anastasio's piece at Wired titled Activision Blizzard Employees Walk Out After Allegations of Rampant Sexism, and I literally said arg when I saw the subtitle. Quote, we love our jobs, but our jobs don't love us back, one worker told Wired, and that hurts, so we're trying to change that. End quote. It's not fair. Uh, as our longtime listeners know, I've written a lot about video games worker organizing, including a chapter in my book, which, of course, is called Work Won't Love You Back. But enough about my feelings. This is a story about workers. D'Anastasio writes, quote, Employees at the gaming giant Activision Blizzard staged a walkout on Wednesday, capping off a week of escalating tensions over how executives have handled accusations of discrimination and sexual harassment at the 10,000-person company. Outside Activision Blizzard's office in Irvine, California, Wednesday morning, employees held signs with messages such as, Believe women, commit to equality, nerf male privilege, and fight bad guys in game, fight bad guys IRL. Cars drove by honking their horns. Online, the hashtag ActiBlizzWalkout was trending as fans of titles like World of Warcraft and Overwatch expressed overwhelming support, including pledges to boycott games for the day in solidarity. An organizer said about 500 people attended the event. An unknown number of other employees participated in the work stoppage remotely. End quote. It is perhaps unsurprising to our listeners, as it was unsurprising to me, that a video games company had a sexual harassment problem. To be fair, we're probably not surprised when any company has a sexual harassment problem, are we? And it was not a shock to me that this particular company would wind up as the poster child for games' labor problems this week. Not all that long ago, there was a campaign to fire Bobby Kotick, the company's CEO, led by games workers angry that the executive was taking a fat salary package and handing out bonuses while laying off 800 lower-level workers. Anyway, so fast forward to today, and those same executives did not respond very well to a lawsuit from California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing, alleging, quote, rampant workplace inequality from unequal pay for similar work to a leadership culture that permitted sexual harassment and even retaliated against women who came forward, end quote. So the workers got organized. 
It's worth noting that Games Workers Unite and Game Workers Southern California have been organizing in the industry for a while, though not to the point of unionizing any companies. And CWA's code project organizer, Emma Kinema, is a veteran of the games industry. So once again, rumblings turning into a walkout are quite likely to have some roots in ongoing work. To Anastasio writes, quote, on Monday, employees across Activision Blizzard decried leadership statements in an open letter, calling them abhorrent and insulting to all that we believe our company should stand for. The letter noted that employees had lost faith that leaders will place employee safety over their own interests and asked Townsend to step down in her role as the executive sponsor of the ABK Women's Network. By Tuesday evening, the letter had over 3,200 signatures from current and former employees. She continues, quote, the movement has been company-wide, a collaborative effort among hundreds and hundreds of people, a Blizzard employee and walkout movement representative tells Wired. The employee adds that there is no current conversation about unionizing. The organizers announced the walkout on Tuesday. They also released a statement of intent for the action, as well as several demands, including sharing data on employees' compensation to ensure fair pay, recruiting policies that better promote diversity, and bringing on a third-party employee-chosen task force to vet human resources and executive staff. These demands are a starting point for us to work with leadership, said another Blizzard employee and walkout representative. There's no soundbite or single page of words that can describe the amount of work that needs to be done in order to create the culture we want to see, end quote. Interestingly, one of the workers' demands is also around ending mandatory arbitration clauses in employees' contracts. This is an ongoing complaint from tech workers and workers in general, particularly after the Me Too movement, as Don Stasio notes, and the Activision Blizzard workers took inspiration from a walkout at Riot Games, which also protested forced arbitration. As noted above, one of the interesting things about these games workers' actions has been the involvement of players, professional and otherwise, and fans of the games. Everyone from Reddit moderators to live streamers holding off on the company's games during the walkout is a sign that could scare executives more than a walkout alone. We will, of course, keep our eyes on the games industry, and if we have listeners who are in games, reach out and tell us what you think. Belabored at DescentMagazine.org. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on Amazon Workers, the AFL-CIO leadership, games workers, and working, and very importantly, of course, not working in the age of COVID-19. Thanks very much, as always, goes to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, and to now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, for tweeting about us, talking about us, sharing us with your friends, writing to us, and telling us your stories. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you are getting your podcasts. It helps us find new listeners. And special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either over at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or over on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash belabored. We, of course, understand and intend to keep the show available for free, but if you can help support us, it really does make a difference in our ability to continue to bring you a show that is worth listening to and brings you updates on all of the labor news around the world. You can, as always, find out more on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored and patreon.com slash belabored. 
If you want to share your story of working under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org. If you are a programmer or a retail worker, a nurse or a coal miner, unemployed or overworked, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.